I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. I want to talk about number one, oh my, me, my. What I think, what I like, what I know, what I see, what I want. Some of you will recognize these as the words to Toby Keith's 2001 hit, I want to talk about me. I think it is an unfortunate thing that this chorus gives description to the majority of our prayer lives. We go before God and the only thing we want to talk about is number one, oh my, me, my. We come to Matthew chapter 6 again this morning and we are doubling back to verses 9 through 15 where Jesus teaches us to pray a different way. He teaches us to pray not with ourselves at the center of our universe, but with God center stage in the theater of our minds. Indeed, he tells us not to pray as pagans attempting to change God's mind, to bend him to our own will, not to pray as hypocrites with hearts that are far from him. Rather, he exhorts us to pray as children, children of our Heavenly Father. I tried to summarize the main idea in this way. Kingdom citizens, remember, we're in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is giving description to uh, those citizens who inhabit his kingdom. Kingdom citizens pray as children of their heavenly Father, of their Father in heaven. Therefore, we, you and I, ought to pray with our hearts set on our Father in heaven rather than on ourselves. You'll notice in your outline that I have, I know it will come as a shock to you, committed an error. Uh, I have listed there in the parenthetical portion, uh, chapter 5, right, over and over again. It's all in chapter 6. We're in chapter 6. But you see there before you how we will break down uh, the model prayer of Jesus. Talk about our Father, our Father's name, our Father's kingdom, and our Father's provision. Let's pray, and then we will uh, set the stage and move into the text this morning. Father, make yourself our treasure this morning. Set our hearts on you, on your Son, our King, Jesus Christ, on your Holy Spirit. Cause us to rejoice in the truth that when we were born again, we took off the old name of sin and death and were given a new name in Christ our Lord. We were baptized into your name, the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We pray this morning that you would help us to learn how to rightly bear your name, how to make much of you, 
in all of life. And particularly when it comes to our prayer lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been working through the book of Matthew, and as you know by this point, Matthew uses those first four chapters to lay out for us Jesus' credentials as the messianic king who was promised. Jesus has the right pedigree, he fulfills the right prophecies, and he has the right endorsement. When he is anointed as king at his baptism, God the Father's voice rings out saying, Behold, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is suited to be king. He's got the right resume. And now Matthew turns in chapters 5 through 9 to show us that Jesus not only has the right credentials, he exercises kingly authority. We see his authority exercised in chapters 8 and 9 over diseases, demons, and even death itself. And here we see his authority on display in his preaching. That's in chapters 5 through 7, what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And the sermon has two goals. We've said this week after week, and that's because repetition is the mother of learning. And every week in Sunday school, I ask, what are the two main goals of the Sermon on the Mount? And every week, people stare blankly back. So here it is. It's going to be on the test. Two main goals in the Sermon on the Mount. One, Jesus is calling us to himself. And two, he's calling us to holiness. So so what he does is he lays out for us a standard of righteousness that is on the level of perfection. It is a level of righteousness to which we cannot rise. So that the impact of his words, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the the goats of religion, you will not get into the kingdom of heaven. When he says that, the impact to us should be, oh no, if they're not getting in, how can anyone get in? The original audience, the hair on their arms would have stood up. So how do we get into the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's not on the basis of our righteousness, but on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. We answered it in our catechism question this morning. How can we be saved? Only by faith in Jesus Christ and in his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. So even though we are guilty, having disobeyed God, and are still inclined to all evil, nevertheless, God, without any merit of our own, but only by pure grace, imputes to us, credits to us, gives to us the perfect righteousness of Christ when we repent and believe in him. Jesus is showing us this level of righteousness to which we cannot ever get to so that we go, how can we be saved? Oh, I need to come to Jesus. Gives us that answer how we can be saved in verse three of chapter five and that opening beatitude which sets the tone and tenor of the whole message. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
It is those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, the impotency of their own righteousness to make themselves right with God. It's those who come to Christ, depend on him in faith, who are saved, who are made right with God. That's the primary goal of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is calling us to himself. And a subsequent goal that is tied to that first goal is that he's also calling us to pursue holiness. The imperatives that we come across in the text are are not just there superfluously. Jesus really does expect us to pursue holiness. He expects us to try to be the kind of people who do not murder our brothers and sisters in our hearts. He expects us to pursue purity of heart, to be peacemakers and so be sons of God, like father, like son. He expects us to pursue holiness and longevity in marriage, to to keep our word, to not seek revenge. He expects us to love our enemies. Indeed, he expects us and calls us to pursue perfection. You see that verse 48 of chapter 5? Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Right? It sounds very similar on purpose to Leviticus 19.2. Right? Be holy because the Lord your God is holy. First Peter is going to repeat this command later on to us where Peter tells us, be holy because God is holy. If you are in Christ and dependent on his grace, you have been set apart as a member of God's holy people. Therefore, your life is to be characterized by holiness. And so this sermon does these two things together at once, and it's wonderful. It calls us to Jesus and to holiness. We, we come to Jesus on our knees in faith, and then we walk in faith. See, those who come to King Jesus and pledge their loyalty on bended knee live for him on their feet. We have truly come to depend on Christ. If he's really our king we will aim to hear and obey his word. A tree is known by its fruit. That's sort of big, big picture. Now, uh, zooming in a little bit more, we're in chapter 6, and in sort of those first uh, 21 verses, really first 18, and the major theme there is hypocrisy. We, we defined hypocrisy a couple weeks ago. We said it's being one thing on the outside and another thing on the inside. We likened it, if you remember, uh, to a time in my life when I thought I was cutting into a cake, uh, but the reality was I was cutting into a watermelon that had been fashioned as a cake. It was as devastating as you can imagine. The cake looked cake-like on the outside, but on the inside it was disappointing watermelon. This is what a hypocrite is. One thing on the outside, another on the inside. And Jesus brings our attention to the hypocrisy, probably of the Pharisees and the religious types, in these 18 verses. He says, they act very spiritual outside, but inside their hearts are not set on God and his glory, but on their own glory. You can see it throughout chapter 6. He says, don't be like the hypocrites in verse 2. He uses these three chief pillars of Jewish piety. They give so that they may be praised by others. Right, they see it again in verse 5. Don't be like the hypocrites who pray publicly so that they may be seen by others. And you see it as it relates to fasting. Don't be like the hypocrites who disfigure their faces, put ashes on their head, so that they may be seen by others. And Jesus tells us, instead, perform your spiritual disciplines, your spiritual life, not to be seen by others, not to gather likes on, on Facebook or on social media, but to 
please your heavenly Father, to have communion with your heavenly Father. He will give to you an eternal reward. Lay up for yourself treasure, not on earth where moth and rust destroy. Lay up for yourself treasure in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What Jesus is calling us to, that the main point of these first 21 or so verses of chapter 6 is, don't be a hypocrite. Don't set your heart on worldly treasures. Be holy. Set your heart on your heavenly Father and his reward. Set your heart on God. And so it's helpful for us to hold this question in our mind, who has my heart? What has my heart? Even as we come to this model prayer. As we come to this model prayer, it is situated in contrast to uh, verses 5 through 8. We see we have a series of two different things. Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites. Instead, pray in secret. Right? Pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So you see the negative, don't pray like the hypocrites who are performing, pray for communion with God. Then he says, don't pray like pagans. In verse 7, don't, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. The Gentiles are those who don't know God. The reason they would heap up these piles of gibberish before various deities was to try to manipulate them into granting their requests. Jesus is saying, don't do that. Don't try to bend God to your will in prayer. God knows what you need, what you really need. Therefore, pray like this. Don't pray like the pagans. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Pray then like this. Verse 9, Matthew chapter 6. Our Father in heaven. Notice the location of God in this opening clause. In heaven. It's not that God is not on earth. It's not that God is not everywhere. Indeed, we know he exists in the highest heaven and in the darkest hell. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. So, so why, why then does Jesus want us to locate God in heaven? I think the reason is this. It's to draw our attention to God's transcendence. That's a big word, but it basically means that God is different than us and on a different plane than us. He, he's high above us. There was a song in the 90s, I don't know who sang it. A lot of music in the sermon today, you'll notice. I don't know how that happened or why, uh, but, but part of the hook was, it was a song about a girl, right? Aren't they all about girls? Uh, but but the, it was, she's so high above me, she's so lovely. And he would go on and describe various uh, female deities to, to, to give description, like, I don't have a chance with this girl. But that idea, I, I don't know why, again, my mind is weird. Uh, this is what transcendence is. God is so high above us. He's other than, he's lovely, he's different from us. He is transcendent. Uh, unfortunately, I think this idea of, of God being enthroned in heaven, in, in majesty, and in his, in his glory and his transcendence is sort of foreign to us. Right? The, the original audience, they would have gotten that part and been really awed at the father part of this passage. But our, our context and our place in history is such that uh, we sort of skip over the, the in heaven part. We, yeah, yeah, God in heaven. And we just want to sit down on the father part 
as if, as if we can separate God's greatness, his transcendence, from his eminence. Eminence is a word that means with us, right? Intimate, think of intimate, right? A personal relationship. We do things that reduce God down to merely Father. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? We take the greatness of God, his, his almightiness, and, and we sort of do away with it so that we can relate to God uh, not as God, but as some reduced version, uh, you know, Daddy God. And therefore, we profane his name. I'm not saying that fatherhood of God is not important. I am saying it is a wicked thing to reduce the God of the universe as if he is just, you know, always in terms of, like, buddy. He's my buddy, my pal. We used to see uh, Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts, right? But on the one hand, you go, oh, yes, you have a friend in God. But on the other hand, you know, this is reducing the king of the universe to your homeboy. As it relates to, to the father, sometimes you get a reduction in the man upstairs. God is great. He's high above us, enthroned in heaven. He holds everything together. He spins the cosmos on a table like we might atop. He sustains the world like you and I might sustain a music note. He is other than. He is holy. He's transcendent. If we don't grasp just how magnificent God is, then we will not be awed at the fact that we, because of Christ, get to relate to him as father. It's actually a funny thing. God is able to have a personal relationship with you and I. He's able to relate to us eminently as a function of his transcendence. What do I mean? Because he can be everywhere all at once, God can give all of us his attention all at once. Back in the fall, spring, summer, fall of 2020, uh, I was tasked with many more childcare duties than I usually am, as Chelsea was traveling back and forth uh, regularly to, to visit her mother, who was in the end stages of breast cancer. And so, you know, I have a number of children, uh, which means you have a number of problems. Uh, but regularly, I would be assaulted with questions. You know, Dad, can I have a snack? Dad, uh, come see my drawing. Uh, Dad, come watch me do this. Dad, can I have another snack? And all of these questions would, would come to me all at once, and quite often I would think, I, I can do these things, but I'm going to have to prioritize and execute, and it's going to take me a minute. I can't 
I can't pay attention to all of you all at once. And then these, these two theological categories that exist in this first clause sort of struck me. God's not like me. He can pay attention to every blade of grass, every mosquito, every droplet of water, every person, all at once. God, because of his transcendence, can be eminent, present with, all of his people all at once. So on the one hand, we have his transcendence, he's other than us, he's omnipresent, he's omnipotent, he holds everything together in his hands, he holds the whole world in his hands, on the one hand. And on the other hand, he holds those who are in Christ as a father might hold a child in his easy chair. You see the difference that makes when you think about who God is and how he has chosen to relate to you in Christ? Then we think about God as the creator and sustainer of everything that is, and then you recognize that you, a creature, have rebelled against him. You've shook your fist at him and said, I'm going to rule myself, and instead of squashing you like a bug, our great triune God sent the unique son to become part of his creation so that he might die for the sins of his creatures. God's justice demanded that you and I and every person who has ever descended from Adam would be punished in hell forever. And instead of giving us what we deserve, our God chose to set his love on his people, chose to send his unique son, to take that punishment for us on the cross and to rise again from the dead so that we might be forgiven, so that we might rise from the dead like Jesus rose, so that we might have the death of Jesus as our death and his life as our life, that our sins would be credited to him and his righteousness imputed to us. This is how we are able to relate to God as Father. Friends, I think it is important at this point to recognize there are two senses in which we talk about uh, people being children of God. Well, we're all children of God. And that's true in, in this first sense, that all of us, all people, are creatures created by God. He is father of all. There is a second sense of God's fatherhood, however, that is unique to the redeemed, to those who relate to God on the basis of their relationship with Jesus. See, we church get to relate to God as father in terms of our relationship with him. Those who are outside of a saving relationship with Jesus Christ do not relate to God as intimate father, but as judge. And one of the images that the Bible picks up on frequently to sort of describe discipleship to Jesus is that 
of becoming a child of God so that we're no longer children of wrath, but we are children of God. One of the things that John notes in chapter 1 when talking of Jesus, John chapter 1 in, in verse 12, to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believed in Jesus' name, God, gave the right, he, sorry, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God. So they weren't children of God, now they are children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God makes his enemies his children. When we follow Jesus, we get to relate to God as Father. And D.A. Carson comments, small wonder that Jesus, after his death and resurrection, could triumphantly instruct Mary with these words. Go to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. By his ministry, death, and resurrection, Jesus brought about the means whereby men and women could come to God Almighty and say meaningfully, Our Father. Non-Christian, you can know God as Father. You will turn from your sin, put your faith in Christ, and come into his loving arms. Christian, do you flippantly relate to God? Just your buddy? Or do you relate to him, perhaps, on the other hand, with a coldness and a distance? He is our Father in heaven. And don't miss that last word. Really, it's the first word in the clause. We worked backwards through it. Don't miss that first word. Our. Our. When Jesus is modeling how we ought to pray, he models it not as an individual prayer, but as a corporate one. He situates prayer not in the lonely closet of verse 5, but in a corporate gathering here in verse 9. Our Father. Indeed, when we are saved out of the world and out of our sins, we are saved into the church as children of our Father in heaven. We are saved into the family of God. If you are a Christian, you will live your life in a local family of God. That's what it means to be a church member. Christianity, even down to model prayer here, is not ever perceived of by the New Testament authors as a solo endeavor that is to be conducted in splendid isolation behind a computer screen in your sweatpants. There is no such thing as digital church. 
There is uh, no such thing as a Christian who isn't committed to the family of God. Maybe you're a Christian in that situation. If you are, you're disobedient. You need to join a local church. Because it is in a local church where we come together as the family of God, acknowledging and affirming one another's Christianity, our status as God's children. It's where we together bear our Father's name. That's the next item in this first, I guess it's the second clause of chapter 9. Third clause. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does that mean? Hallowed be your name. Hallowed is a weird word. It just means holy, to be set apart, to make holy. There's two sort of requests bundled together here. One is the idea, it's almost like we're praying, make us holy because we represent your name. You're our Father. We have your name. We were baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're our triune God. We, your family, your church, we represent you. So so make us holy so that we're rightly representing you. And supremely, the request is that God's name would be made holy throughout the whole world. When uh, my family goes places, sometimes uh, Chelsea will ask, my children, an informal catechism question. She first reminds them of, we have rules in my house. I think there are 21 of them. Uh, I know like three of them. Chelsea knows them. And I think my kids know most of them. Uh, But one of the rules is, when we go out of our house, wherever we go, we act as if we are in our home. We follow these same rules consistently. So she'll remind them of that fact, and then she will ask this question. Who do we represent? And the answer will come, the Braun family and the Lord Jesus Christ. I do think many of us would benefit from rehearsing a similar catechism question as individual Christians and as the church together. Who do I, who do we represent Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God of the universe. The Lord, Jesus Christ. It might be a, a good practice when you are sitting in traffic and cursing those around you. Who, who, who do I represent? When dealing with somebody of a different political affiliation than yourself, it might be important to ask yourself, who do I represent? When we engage with one another, we're witnessing in the community, who do we represent? The family of our Father in heaven. We long for his name to be holied, to be rightly honored. Is that a prayer that you have ever prayed? I mean, I know we, we pray the Lord's Prayer together weekly here, but I wonder how many of us pray it honestly. Do you, do you want to be holy? Do you ask God to make you holy? Do you pray that God's name would be seen as holy throughout the whole earth? 
pray to our Father who is in heaven. We pray that our Father's name would be holied, and we pray our Father's kingdom would come. Jesus says uh, in verse 10, I like the old word, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what does this mean when we pray for the kingdom to come? Well, it means that we're praying for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we talk about God's will, we can go a lot of different directions. I think most Christians, when they think of God's will, they think in terms of his will of direction for their own individual lives. Um, sure, that's in view here a little bit, that we want God's will done in our lives, but that's not something that we can know with 100% certainty. And so if somebody comes, they go, I need to know God's will, whether I would go to Virginia Tech or to UVA, or if it's God's will for me to retire at 65, or if it's God's will for me to, to marry Bob. But God is not going to write in the sky, marry Bob, right? But we are to do in those situations when we're making decisions we're to consult the Bible to make sure that our desires are not in conflict with God's revealed will, which we're coming to. We want to take counsel together with other Christians, to pray, and then we want to act. We want to, as Kevin DeYoung has titled his brilliant little book on the subject, just do something. God's will of direction, sure, sure, it's here. But I think primarily these two other aspects of God's will are in view. One is his will of desire. And I'm, I'm ripping these off from DeYoung, if you're wondering. Not, this is not my wonderful alliteration, it's his. So direction, desire, number two. God's will of desire is laid out for us in his commands. It's how he desires for his people to, to live. So when we are praying for God's will to be done, we are praying that disciples would be made, that disciples would be maturing as we grow up into obeying all that Christ has commanded us. We're praying that, that God's rule would be submitted to throughout all of creation as his kingdom grows. And we are praying for his kingdom to come in its fullness. Will of desire. Lastly, we'll speak of God's will of decree. Decree, got direction, desire, decree. God's will of decree refers to everything that comes to pass. Our God has ordained everything. And so when we pray for God's will of decree to come to pass, we are praying for his plan and his purpose and his promises to be fulfilled. Now we see God's will of decree in, in a few places throughout Scripture. I'm just going to bring a couple to your attention. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11, in him, that's Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, that's God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So, so what does God work according to the counsel of his will? All things. What's included in all things? Everything. That's why Matthew later tells us not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. Why Matthew reminds us that even the numbers of number of hairs on our head or lack thereof, like that happens according to the counsel of God's will. We sang about God's will of decree this morning as it relates to our own individual lives and the sands of time. 
It was a song about a man coming to the end of his life. He says this, with mercy and with judgment, my web of time he wove, and always dews of sorrow were lustered with his love. I'll bless the hand that guided, I'll bless the heart that planned, when throned where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. We see this most prominently God's will of decree coming to pass in Acts chapter 2, when our attention is put on the cross by the Apostle Peter. As he proclaims, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The cross was not an accident. God planned it as he planned your salvation before the foundation of the world. When we pray this prayer, we are praying that God's will of direction would take place in our lives. We are praying that his will of desire, that we would be obeying his commandments, that others would come to obey his commandments as his church grows. And we are praying that his decrees would be fully and finally fulfilled, that his promises would come to pass, that Christ would split the clouds apart and return on his white horse with his sword in his mouth and his tattoo on his thigh to make all things well. This is what we are praying. Do you pray that way? One commentator notes, throughout the centuries, followers of Jesus suffering savage persecution have prayed this prayer with meaning and fervor. But I suspect that our comfortable pews often mock our sincerity when we repeat the phrase today. We would have no objection to the Lord's return, we think, provided he holds off a bit, lets us finish our degree first, enjoy one more summer, lets us taste of marriage, or gives us time to succeed in business or our profession, grants us the joy of seeing grandchildren and enjoying our, our golden years. Then we'll be okay with his return. Do we? Really hunger for the kingdom to come? Really pray in that direction? Is God, His will, at the center of your prayer life? There's a shift now in the prayer. Oftentimes this prayer is divided into two halves, right? They go, all right, this first half is about God and His holiness, and the second half is about us and our needs. I think that's a misstep. I've structured your outline to reflect that, and I've deliberately spent the bulk of my time this morning on the first portion of the prayer. So I believe the whole prayer is about God, about who God is and how dependent on God we are. And so as we move into the second portion of the prayer, uh, it is my suspicion that most of us spend much more time on the, the second half of the prayer than we do in the first half. 
most of us live in give us this day our daily bread rather than our Father in heaven. And I want to challenge you to, to spend more time, more of your time in prayer, in the first half. Does that make sense? We've seen our Father, our Father's name, our Father's kingdom, and now we come to our Father's provision. We see both spiritual and physical provision, and we've already uh, sort of spoiled it. If you were not familiar, the next portion in verse 11 comes to us, give us this day our daily bread. This struck a more vibrant chord to the original listeners because they lived, most of them, hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck. For us, we... (laughs) You know, we're not wondering where our next meal is coming from or if it's coming. You know, we're, we're wondering what we're going to have for it, whether we're going to order Cheerios or Giuseppe's or throw something in the oven. To realize this is a, a prayer of dependence. Give us this day our daily bread is not taken for granted. But bread was the stuff of life. It was essential. The prayer It's for God to provide for one's needs. It is a good thing to pray for God to meet your needs. But note, the posture of this prayer is total God dependence. When we pray this, we are not to be praying with the attitude of uh, gimme, 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 right? The petition is actually more, I rely on you for my daily needs. You will give me what I need. And when you cease to provide, I will die. And that will be good, because you are good. Friends, I wonder, do you rely on God to meet your daily needs? Does the melody of your life like Destiny's, Child, Destiny's Child's classic song. I can't say that phrase together. It's a group called Destiny's Child. They had a song, and this was the lyric. Is your life like it? The shoes on my feet, I bought them. The clothes I'm wearing, I bought them. The rock I'm rocking, I think that refers to a ring. I bought it because I depend on me. If I want it, the watch I'm wearing, I bought it. The house I live in, I bought it. The car I'm driving, I bought it. I depend on me. Honestly, I think that's where most of us live. We, we don't give much thought to give us this day our daily bread because all of our needs have always been met and we are dependent on what is in our bank account. And we think, everything I have, I have earned. I bought it. I depend on me, when rather our posture should be pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine and 10,000 beside, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see, all I have needed, thy hand hath provided, great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Who do you depend on? Do your prayers reflect that? Father provides for our physical needs, and he provides for our spiritual needs. Look at verse 12. 
Forgive us our debts. This is a metaphor for our sins. We owe God a sin debt that we cannot pay. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And we're going to jump down. Jesus comments on this part again in verse 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Is Jesus upending the gospel that I preached this morning with these verses? Is he making the mercy of God dependent on human mercy? Right. So in order for God to forgive me, I have to first forgive uh, Jim. Then he'll have mercy on me. And the text sure reads that way, doesn't it? No, uh, Jesus is, is not teaching that. That would go against the grain of Matthew's gospel, against the grain of this sermon, and against the, the grain of Jesus' teaching later in Matthew 18, which I think gives us a clearer picture of what he's talking about here. But really, the, the nub of this, the idea is, if we are forgiven, then we will forgive others. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells a parable that you're familiar with of the unforgiving servant. There's a king, he's going to settle debts, and there is a servant who owes the king Elon Musk level money, okay? He can never pay it back. And the king's getting ready to put him into debtor's prison, and he begs him, hey, hey, give me more time, I'll pay it back. And the king, instead of just granting him more time, has mercy on him, loves him. He says, the debt is forgiven. Unforgiving servant then goes out and finds another servant who owes him far less money, you know, Justin Braun level money. And he, he chokes him and beats him and says, pay what you owe. The man says, give me more time. He doesn't give him more time. He has him thrown into debtor's prison. Others recognize this situation. They're disturbed by it, and they report it to the king. And the king summons the unforgiving servant and says this, Matthew 18, verse 32. You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers, also translated torturers, if we want to be literal, until he should pay all his debt. Here's the, the point of the parable, Jesus, verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we can see our forgiveness of others is predicated on our having been forgiven by God. That's the idea of forgive us as we forgive our debtors. It's twofold. One is we are recognizing that we come to God and ask for forgiveness. He has mercy on us. We owed uh, Elon Musk level sin debt to God, and Jesus paid it all. God forgives it. As the old hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus has paid all of our sin debt and credited to us all of his righteousness. We are forgiven. And daily when we come to ask God to forgive us our sins, we are 
procuring, we are taking hold of the pardon of sin that has already been secured for us by the blood of Christ. So when you have past sins dredged up in your mind, the evil one whispers in your ear, but you did this thing. We need to simply remind him, I am forgiven. I am made new. You're, you're right, I did that thing. But I have been crucified with Christ. The penalty has been paid, and it's no longer I who live, but he who lives in me. The life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's part one of this. We're to remember our own forgiveness. Part two is we are to extend forgiveness to others as God has extended his forgiveness to us. There is a real warning in this passage. Remember at the end of Matthew 18, verse 35, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Likewise, Jesus is saying, if you do not forgive others, your Father will not forgive your trespasses. He's not saying if you fail to forgive somebody that your salvation is in jeopardy. That's not what he's doing. He's giving, driving home the point that if we have been forgiven much, we will forgive much. This is cheesy, but it'll help you remember. Forgiven people forgive people, right? Probably heard that before. It's true. If we have experienced God's forgiveness of our incredible debt of sin, it will be a small thing for us to forgive the sins of others against us. John Stott said, Once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If, on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own offenses against God. Whose sin is biggest in your eyes? Are you an expert in the sins of others? May it never be. Let us see our own offenses against God. It's much bigger than the trifling offenses others commit against us. Let us be a forgiving people. Let us forgive as Christ has forgiven us. Your prayers ask God for forgiveness and for the strength to forgive others. Last request that our Father would provide not only for us in terms of our spiritual needs and our physical needs, but the spiritual need to faithfully endure trials and temptations. The word temptation here is going to come up it is the same Greek word for trial. You translate it one way or the other based on the context. We see that Jesus was led into the wilderness by God to be tested. And so we recognize that the prayer can't be saying, God, don't do what you do, right? What, what, what the nub of it is, is to say, God, deliver us from evil. Don't let us falter amidst trials and temptations. Don't let us give in. Thus we read, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
We are asking for God to protect us against the trials and temptations through which we will walk. We, we, we sang a song this morning. We actually skipped this verse, unfortunately. Uh, and how firm a foundation, the verse goes like this, and it's, it's asking God to come through on this prayer. And, and that, that hymn is sung from the perspective of God. It goes like this. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you, I only design your dross to consume and the gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul that all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. This prayer is God carry us through to the end of the Christian life faithfully. The evil one and evil circumstances will assault me. I will go through trials. Help me to stand firm. Help me to keep the faith. Help me to stand amazed at your promises to me in Christ and to continue to pursue holiness. Help me to be struck by how marvelous, how wonderful your love for me is and allow that love to control and compel me to walk by faith faithfully, even when I cannot see, even amidst the deepest darkness that will come upon me. Don't let me falter. Hold me fast until the end. We pray this prayer typically. We conclude the Lord's Prayer each week with the doxology, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It is a beautiful doxology. It is a traditional doxology. We say it for good reason. But it is important to note that it is not scriptural. It's not included in the earliest and best manuscripts, and thus not in the majority of your Bibles. It's good, but it's not inspired. And so we've come to the end of this prayer. A lot of theology packed into these few words this morning. The main thing I think, though, is that God is central. And some of you may leave here thinking, and maybe you've been thinking this all along, this is pretty dull. Maybe your prayer life is uninspiring. If you have found this dull, if your prayer life is uninspiring, might I suggest it's because your prayer life has become all about number one, oh my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I see. Might I suggest that you have begun praying as the hypocrites do, with your heart set on yourself and your glory rather than God's glory? Might I suggest that you have been praying as the pagans do, asking God to conform himself to your will? It is so easy for us to pray. Change thy will rather than thy will be done. Friends, we want to pray as children of our Father in heaven. Considering our Father's name, our Father's kingdom, and our Father's provision. 
Father, we thank you for the privilege of addressing you, the creator and sustainer of all things, as Father. We thank you that you have made us, your enemies, your sons and daughters, at the cost, the death of our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful thing to know you. It is what we were created for. We give you thanks and honor and glory this morning. and we, we pray that you would, by your spirit, crucify our flesh and its passions. That you would kill the religion of self that persists within us. Pray that you would help us to live not for ourselves, not to be seen and praised by others, but for you. Pray that we would live for your glory in obedience to King Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.